looking for you and you're still looking for the women? I've got an explanation for this, but I don't believe it myself. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 20, The Biggest Place in Town. In the 1940s, Mr. Groucho Marx was determined to find success as an individual performer without his brothers and star in a great musical comedy. Instead, he starred in Copacabana, (laughs) 1947, a film which is really not bad, nor is it quite good, and which pairs him with Carmen Miranda in an exciting stellar team-up that sets off dazzling fireworks of comic chemistry, occasionally in small measure. As with other lesser efforts like Room Service, with which it shares a co-writer, and Night in Casablanca and Love Happy, with which it shares a distributor, this film turns to dust when compared with the early masterpieces, but it remains fairly pleasant to watch and even more pleasant to discuss with these two fellas. As always, I am here with two wits. Two wit. (laughs) He edits, he researches, he kibitzes. He's a history detective, a media maven, and a zany, lovable wiseacre. Here's America's dad, Bob Gasell. <laughs> yeah, to paraphrase Chico, uh, it's a lousy movie, but it makes a great podcast. <laughs> we'll see. And he is the indefatigable mastermind who restored, adapted, and starred in I Feel Say That She Is, the Lost Sig Ruman musical. <laughs> Here's the father of Britain. Matthew Conium. And I'll wrestle anybody in the crowd for $5. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Noah Diamond, and here we go, right into it, Copacabana. Now, wait, let me interrupt you uh, before you get started here. Um, By all means. I got a confession to make. Up until a couple of days ago, I had never seen this film all the way through. Is that true? Wish I had a good reason. I wish I had a well-thought-out excuse, but I don't, so... I'm going to have a lot of half-baked ideas and thoughts about the film, but uh, hoping you guys will straighten me out. Uh, I'm, I have the opposite uh, orientation with this movie, Bob. I've seen it way too many times and came upon it fairly early in my interest in the Marxes um, and recorded it from television when I was a kid and, and therefore had the opportunity to watch it uh, an innumerable number of times. And uh, I think... Even before I had seen some of the great Marx Brothers movies, I was very familiar with this one. Mm-hmm. I think on my shelf it was like Duck Soup, Night at the Opera, and Copacabana, when I still hadn't seen Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. I'm in the middle. I've I've seen it three or four times. That's still probably more than everyone except Noah and the guy who edited it, but, uh, but still. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. funny how many times it was... Uh... You see it promoted or advertised as a Marx Brothers films in film festivals or in old newspaper clippings. It gets thrown in as a Marx Brothers film. I don't know if that's just people being lazy or trying to pull something or what. It's true. In a way, it belongs to the Marx Brothers era, the tail end. I mean, it came out after Night in Casablanca, but before Love Happy. So the Marx Brothers were not done appearing on marquees as the Marx Brothers when this came out. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also one of the most widely and easily available Marx projects because, uh, in the United States anyway, it's in the public domain. Um, and so it's everywhere. You can find, uh, innumerable, uh, you know, DVD versions and some of them in, in quite good, you know, quite good prints. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, the at the end of the Marx Brothers career, Groucho was desperate to appear in solo vehicles. He did not want to be one of the Marx Brothers anymore. Uh, and this was not the first film offered to him as a solo, but the first one that he took. Hmm. Um, oh, it's also it's notable that it's an independent film, uh, like Night in Casablanca and Love Happy. Uh, it was produced principally by Sam Coslow, who was a songwriter. He was responsible for Cocktails for Two uh, and uh, Mr. Paganini. If you can't sing it, you'll have to swing it. Uh, songs that kind of um, occupy a middle ground between novelty numbers and legitimate hits. Um, he wrote songs for Copacabana, too. And I guess we'll talk about them as we as we get to them. None of them quite have the genius of Cocktails for Two. Um, but he had this idea. He was teaming up with the owners of the actual Copacabana nightclub in New York. Um, and Carmen Miranda, who had appeared at the Copa and whose management was involved in the original discussions, seemed like an obvious star for a vehicle set at the Copa. Mm-hmm. But finding a male star was some challenge. And uh, Matthew, as you explain in your book, uh, Sam Coslow uh, may have been approached by the Marx brother who never appeared on screen. Yes. He, he, he says about, he was um, thinking about who, who to get for the role. And, the, and a, he got a letter, he says from, from Gummo uh, offering him the Marx brothers um, in a, in a reunion film. So obviously Gummo was kind of scouting around the independent producers. And this would have been at the time of, of, um, a night in Casablanca. So, so we assume that uh, either Lowe, David Lowe was still mulling over the offer or he, he hadn't received his offer yet. And um, because Coslow had just um, announced a, a, a team up with Mary Pickford to produce a, a series of musicals, um, Gummo got in touch with him and said, do you, do you want to do a Marx Brothers film? And he got back and said, no, I don't, but I, I am doing this, this thing, um, which has got a, re- a really good part in it for Groucho on his own. Um, at which point Gummo, according to Coslow, uh, said, you know, what are you crazy? You want to, you want to split up the Marx Brothers? Um, as if the past five years kind of hadn't happened when, uh, they had been split up and, uh, Groucho had been very, as you say, very, very uh, zealously um, pursuing a solo career that had had really come to very little. Um, He had very high hopes, um, although, as we know, a huge radio hit was just around the corner. At this point, he really hadn't made the kind of mark he wanted to on radio. He'd only done guest spots Mm. on other people's shows. There are a lot of letters Mm. to, uh, to Miriam where he says, you know, I don't understand it. Why can't I get a radio show? I'm funnier than these people. Um, not really realizing that, that it was, you know, his persona didn't really lend itself to, to a radio variety format. Um, but he, you know, he was quite despondent. There were no films. Uh, radio hadn't taken off. And so an offer like this is something that he would have, you know, and did kind of snap at. So we have an interesting question of, of timing here. Um, if Gummo received that offer from Coslow uh, while he was still hawking what would become a night in Casablanca, one wonders if he actually sat on it for a while, uh, knowing that if Groucho uh, had received that offer, that would then nix Casablanca. Because as we as we know, you know the 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 only thing 
uh, Groucho wanted to do less than a new Marx Brothers film was no film at all. And and I get the feeling that a night in Casablanca, you know, although you know officially because Chico needed the money, uh, it was also that Groucho was desperate just to get some kind of product out with his face on it. Is it possible that they made an agreement that Groucho would do it, but they were just going to sit sit tight for a year until after Night Casablanca was done? I don't think it was quite as long as a as a year, but yeah, my my guess is uh, there was some there was some maneuvering behind the scenes that maybe Groucho was unaware of. Oh, I was I was thinking perhaps he was in on it. Well, I just uh, impossibly. I mean, this is just this is just guesswork, but I I get the feeling that Gummo was waiting for Groucho to get his name on the dotted line on that night in Casablanca mm-hmm. contract before he then said, "And hey, we've got you a solo film as well." In many ways, it's a very smart idea. Um, I mean, teaming up with uh, the Copa itself and making this film that's sort of, um, in a way, a promotional product for the nightclub, but also capitalizes on the name of the Copa and all that it implies, glamour and excitement and the New York nightlife. Although there's no Lola the showgirl, no Tony behind the bar. <laughs> that's our first Barry Manilow reference of the day. I was <laughs> <laughs> Coslow, as a producer trying to, um, he had a budget of $1,300,000. Um, and he obviously spent as much as he possibly could on this one set for the Copa itself, which looks very lavish on film. And it gives the whole film a feeling of higher prestige than it actually has. Is that what the uh, real one looked like? Is it similar? It's similar. I mean, I've only seen photos, of course, but it, it, yeah, it's it, generally the way it looked and felt, I think, but it's not slavishly recreated detail for detail. Mm -hmm. The real Copa opened in 1940 on East 60th Street, um, and then it closed and reopened numerous times at numerous locations. Uh, It is currently on 8th Avenue and 47th Street. And um, so at this point, the Copa was new. It had only been around for seven years when the movie opened. And so it was the current and new hotspot it eventually becomes the launch pad for lots of important careers, Martin and Lewis and mm-hmm. the Supremes, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, there's a great video, full-length show of Martin and Lewis performing there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a good way to make a an independent and somewhat tightly budgeted film look very lavish and, and very Hollywood. The opening shot is particularly compelling, looking down at the club through this kind of various art shapes on the ceiling oh yeah coming down yeah it's, it's yeah. immediately arresting matthew getting back to what you were saying about gummo saying though no, you want to break up the marx brothers yeah you know since he hadn't appeared on screen without them i think people still thought of them as like okay they're doing the separate stuff but movie wise they're they're going to get back together and you know this 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 would have been the first real like yes they're they're going the separate ways groucho appearing without the others Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, uh, Groucho himself uh, was, you know, was very, very keen to uh, to to um, branch off and to and to lose that that uh, association. Mm. So I do, I do think he was he was fairly desperate when he agreed to to do Night at Casablanca. It was it was very reluctant, I think. He was clearly um, a, a get for this film, and he was he was courted. He was also uh, pretty handsomely paid for his work here. He was the only member of the cast who was given a percentage of the prospective profits. Uh, 10% Groucho was one of 10 parties who had uh, a piece of the action. Mm-hmm. And our screenwriters this time around are, uh, for one, Alan Baretz, who, as we know, co-wrote 
room service. Um, and, and it does have some, it does feel a little bit like room service in some ways. Oh, I'm yeah. sure Alan Baritz is one of the reasons. I think especially the, um, where Groucho um, is standing accused for a murder that didn't happen is a bit like them trying to cover up the evidence of a suicide that didn't happen, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and this kind of backstage, you know, story, I mean, it, it it's the same sort of milieu. A strong reminiscent of Room Service. Could have been the further adventures of Gordon Miller, mm. you know? Mm. Right, and even, yes, casting Groucho as a kind of behind-the-scenes showbiz operator. Mm-hmm. Um, the other screenwriters are Laszlo Vodnay, a Hungarian screenwriter who was uh, active for 30 years in Hungary and Hollywood. Uh, I don't recognize any of the other titles in his filmography, but they include 1934's The Dream Car and 1935's Car of Dreams. Ah, Car of Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) And Howard Harris, who was uh, one of uh, Groucho's writers on You Bet Your Life and Mm -hmm. wrote for Jackie Gleason and Gilligan's Island and other shows. With additional dialogue by Sidney Zelinka, who won an mm. Emmy for Sergeant Bilko. Mm. And Charles Lederer in there as well. Oh, Charles Lederer, yeah. A good friend of Harpo's, among other things. And mm. um, uh, oh, Zelinka also contributed to uh, Night in Casablanca. And Groucho referred to um, Vadne as a Hungarian named Lazzo or something, who fancies himself yes. a comedy writer. <laughs> and whenever I encounter him, he says, here is a funny line. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems as though they were still rewriting it and tailoring it for Groucho after they started shooting. Yes, yeah. He well, he he told Miriam um, when he started, he, or when he started working on it, he told Miriam that that about half the script was done, and uh, the rest was was being altered to satisfy my demands. I'm busy bouncing writers almost daily, so I think quite a few writers passed through. There was also a guy called Walter De Leon who had just done some mm-hmm. some Abbott and Costello. And Groucho himself, I think. Uh, Coslo mm-hmm. certainly says in his in his autobiography that Groucho contributed a lot of lines. Um, so uh, I think I think one or two, uh, like the the reference to, to three handed pinochle, uh, has something yes. of a of a Groucho uh, stamp. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, a a number of lines in the movie that feel like Groucho must have had something to do at least with the way they're phrased. He was never interested in taking a writing credit, was he? No, only on. Uh, uh, whatever it's called, the, the king and the chorus, king and the chorus girl. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the very memorable, the king and the chorus girl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they put together a Groucho character for him to play. Who, which you know, it, the, this part as as written still could have been played by someone else, but uh, but probably not as <laughs> distinctively. Yeah. Uh, he <laughs> described himself as a poor man's Ronald Coleman in this film. Uh, he says, I'm more of a human being. There's even a little sympathy to it. Um, uh, one thing that I think makes this movie uh, watchable is the the ways in which Groucho's character is different from his traditional character don't feel like affronts the way they do in some of the later Marx Brothers movies, where it's impossible not to think, oh, Groucho wouldn't do that, or he wouldn't say that, or this is a cheap ploy for sympathy. Once he's out of the context of the Marx Brothers and out of his normal makeup, which I mm. imagine we'll discuss, um, you know, it's it's fine for him to be playing a slightly different version of himself. That's the whole conundrum he was dealing with, because... You know, you want him so much to be the funny Groucho you know, but when he is, you're like, well, why doesn't he just do a Marx Brothers film? But when he goes too far in the other direction, you're like, well, this isn't the Groucho I like. So it's tough to find the exact sweet spot. I think he plays it a lot 
less gratuitously uh, uh, than than he could have done. If you the the part as written, I think uh, is is very much I think along the Groucho lines. He's he's a cheap, chiselling, uh, you know, small time um, operator, mm. a bit a bit a bit of a fraud, a bit of a crook. Um, but but Groucho plays him much much more kind of elegantly in a way he's he's quite dapper he reminds me a bit of um chaplin in monsieur verdoux a lot of eyebrow wiggles there are eyebrow wiggles yes but uh yeah he's he's, he's much more dapper hmm. and obviously the little mustache uh, lends itself to to that he also seems to occasionally strike vocal notes that are new for his film persona um lines like uh when he says i'm gonna have the boys take care of you and when he's asked for more details he says oh just boys boys. (laughs) and there's a few other lines he delivers in this kind of under his breath sort of apologetic growl um which is very effective but Mm -hmm. not part of his old bag of tricks yeah there's a few other things like that too uh, I'm also reminded by your comments, Matthew, that uh, uh, one thing that adds a layer of interest to this film is that it was being made during the time when he was writing a lot to Miriam. And in the excellent book, Love Groucho, edited by Miriam, which collects his letters to her, um, we get an unusually um, deep and broad uh, look into his mind while making a movie. Um, his day-to-day thoughts while making um, most of the great classics are not available to us. But we really know what was on his mind and what he thought and his his rising and falling opinion of the results in real time. And of Carmen Miranda. That's the other interesting thing, isn't it? He yeah. starts off being being yeah. really... He says, says she looks like a bulldog. Uh, he says that he can't understand a word she's saying and they're going to need interpreters, uh, that all her songs are the same. And then over the period he's working with her, he, he totally uh, changes his mind and ends up uh, saying she she's you know she, she's a really nice and uh, and professional lady so so it's fascinating to to, to watch that progression if only we had a, a record like that of of the earlier films but then at the end he says he doesn't want to work with her again <laughs> yes although for yeah. this for the usual reasons you know because they were that some of those strangely ecstatic early reviews which i'm sure we'll get to later um were already kind of mm. presenting them as a new as a new double act so i think he saw himself heading down mm. the same old cul-de-sac uh and uh, apparently mm. he did turn down another offer um, and then years later in, in uh, Hello, I Must Be Going, Charlotte Chandler asks him for, for his, his memories of her. And he says uh, she was a very small lady who wore built-up shoes. Five feet tall. <laughs> that's, that's, his, that's his abiding memory. <laughs> yeah, they didn't quote that in the trade ads. <laughs> I wonder if they saw Groucho and Carmen as like the next uh, like W.C. Fields and Mae West. If they, they were hoping something like yeah. that was happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Miss Miranda. She is um, a a singular performer, certainly. I, uh, not just in this film, but in other contexts, and certainly in her recording career, um, she seems to be a a great talent in her own right. Um, She was born in Portugal in 1909, rose to fame in Brazil, and then New York and Hollywood. Mm -hmm. She conquered every medium, uh, nightclubs, recordings, films. Um, her trademark, of course, was very tall, involved hats, often bedecked with fruit, which originated in her job in a haberdashery before she went into showbiz. Hmm. She was sometimes known as the lady in the tutti fruity hat. I'm getting a fine tutti fruitying right here. Hmm. Um, and among her 
lasting contributions to popular culture, she inspired the Chiquita Banana logo. Hmm. Uh, She reminds me a little bit of Louis Armstrong in that she was initially (laughs) a hero of her ethnic group. Um, You know, uh, it was um, delightful that uh, a Latin star rose to such mainstream uh, success. And then there was a period where she fell out of favor for the same reason. It was seen as a sort of a a form of minstrelsy. Um, Mm. And she made, um, you know, other uh, Brazilians um, and South American artists sort of wince. Um, And then she returned to favor eventually Mm. and was and today is acknowledged as a pioneer. She died of a heart attack at the age of 46 in 1955. And Copacabana was important in her career. She was the star originally attached to it. The movie gives her a lot to do, including a dual role. Um, one of many connections between this and the films of Danny Kaye. We'll get to some more of that as we continue. One of the investors in Copacabana sent his brother, David Sebastian, to represent him on the set and make sure everything was running like clockwork. And this David Sebastian struck up a friendship with Carmen Miranda, and they were married the same year the movie was released. Hmm. They uh, separated before long, but never divorced and remained uh, friendly and supportive of each other. To me, it seems like the team-up of Groucho and Carmen had a lot of possibilities and was a good idea. I think he, he had to be teamed up with somebody. As, as we know, despite his fever to be a solo artist, Groucho solo is something that almost never happened. Um, he always needed somebody to bounce jokes off of and have chemistry with. And teaming him up with a female star was also a, a, an inspired yeah. idea. Yeah. Uh, he had, of course, been... Excellent with Margaret Dumont and Thelma Todd and others in the Marx Brothers films. And also teaming him up with a woman um, was sure to draw a distinction between his old team and his new one. As a, as a duo in the movie, they don't quite come off as greatly as they could have. Um, and I guess anyone who had very high hopes for this teaming was ultimately somewhat disappointed. But I think it was a good idea. And, um, mm-hmm. Maybe the fact that her personality is just as unusual and flamboyant as his yes. was part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I would agree with everything you said. Uh, she obviously is a, a striking and, and unusual talent. Personally, I find her just a bit much, or rather, um, I find a little of her goes a long way. And one of the things with this film mm-hmm. is there's a lot of her. Um, it, it's There are loads and loads of songs and so much plot and subplot. Um, it's almost like the film doesn't give itself a chance to, to, to just relax and, and put these two stars in, you know, in their best light. They're, they're too busy all the time with, with either with numbers or with the plot. Um, uh, it, it should have been, um, quite severely hacked back. I think, I think we could have lost a lot of the subplot with about the, you know, Gloria Jean and, and, uh, falling in love with her boss and all that stuff and, and just make more of the central farcical situation um and yeah and carmen miranda herself you know i i just i once i've seen her for 10 minutes i i need a break i couldn't really tell whether groucho and carmen were supposed to be a romantic couple or whether they were headed that way there's a lot of times where they're not they're just business partners but at one point carmen says well why don't we get married it really wasn't made clear to me what Mm. direction they were headed with their Mm. relationship 
The dialogue suggests that they've been engaged for 10 years. It's almost a guys and dolls kind of mm. uh, story detail there, you know, this long engagement and <laughs> she wants she's impatient to get married and he keeps putting it off. But they're they're uh, they do have some chemistry, but it's not sexual chemistry and um I think Matthew didn't you uh report in your book that uh Groucho t- insisted on a contractual clause that he wouldn't kiss her. According, on according to Coslow, yeah. But he does. Was... But he does at the end. Well, if this is going to be on a competitive basis, it's heaven. Okay. Well, according to Coslow, anyway, he, was just he did. moved in the moment. Yeah. He did have this clause mm-hmm. in his contract, and Coslow never really knew why, and he says he certainly mm-hmm. never told. Carmen Miranda that because she would have been furious but I as I say in my, my book I, the feeling I get isn't so much that he didn't want to kiss Carmen Miranda it was just that he he was sort of laying out the boundaries of what a new Groucho could or couldn't do and I think he thought you know a, a proper you know a romantic kiss uh, would be unacceptable in any guise yeah the one at the end doesn't really count as a romantic right. it's just like everybody's kissing her so like yeah. why not join the join the party yeah. Well, uh, right away, the movie um, uh, wins me over because I'm a cheap date. Yeah. And if you start with a shot of Times Square and <laughs> names on marquees. That's on my notes. Noah exclamation point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we open. And yeah, especially the title card with Groucho's name on it. It's on this neon marquee mm-hmm. over the Manhattan skyline. I'm in. Um <laughs> Then the opening number starts uh, after that opening shot, which is quite artful and, and striking. Uh, that song is not. Um, Matthew, you describe it as, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but one of those numbers where um, chorus girls sing about wanting to be discovered. Um, oddly, the Hollywood bigwigs they name are Goldwyn, Selznick, and Leo McCary. McCary. Yeah. yeah, right off the bat, this film is very meta. You know, yeah. it, it really is. There are so many points in the film where like, yeah, we know we're making a movie, we're entertaining you with a movie, and they remind you of it. That's right, yeah. And those meta moments are sometimes quite quite brilliant, and sometimes mm-hmm. they sort of are lead balloons, and I, this is one of those. Uh, there is one line in this little opening um, that I, I quite like. I could emote and lay my soul bare Something like Miss Claudette Colbert. That's not bad. I like the one about uh, I'm ready, willing, and able to sign a contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a cynicism to it. Yeah. And actually, in general, throughout this movie, the Copa girls <laughs> on screen are, you know, there's uh, repeatedly Groucho has some kind of uh, come on moment with one of these girls, but they're all very cynical, hard boiled. They all rebuff him with a kind of sassy put down. Uh, these are tough girls, these Copa girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we meet Groucho and, and Carmen, um, and we establish right away that the style of humor is, you know, familiar. Why are you always chasing women? I'll tell you as soon as I catch one. Feels like we've heard that somewhere before. Mm-hmm. Steve Cochran is an interesting figure. Um, he's on loan from Sam Goldwyn here. <laughs> I love that in the credits that it's by arrangement with Sam Goldwyn. <laughs> I know. Uh, this was also filmed in on Goldwyn's uh, sets. He, mm. he um, you know, also an independent uh, uh, creator in Hollywood at, at a time before it was cool. So I read that this was originally announced as a Technicolor 
uh, production, mm. but I guess that was abandoned pretty early on. No, it's funny. I remembered it in color. I, I'm not sure if maybe the version I taped from TV when I was 12 was the colorized version, mm. or maybe I just remembered it wrong. But catching up with this movie in more recent years, I was surprised that it was in black and white. Yes, it was originally announced as as being in Technicolor, but uh, that that fell by the wayside when uh, I think it was. Uh, it, but, but according to Coslow, again, he had to personally go out scouting for for the budget, which he didn't realise was part of the deal. He thought that uh, United Artists were were going to produce, you know, put the production money into it as well as the distribution money, and that it was a it was a kind of a sewn up deal. And instead, he was he was handed a you know a list of people to to go and uh, and bother to get to get checks so i think the plans for it um you know shrunk daily in those early mm. uh, early planning stages um and yeah i think you i think you can see that on on screen i think you you can see a lot of a lot of ambition you know crammed into one set as as noah says it's a it's a it's a lovely mm-hmm. set but it's uh, what you see is what you get for the whole whole movie basically yeah, the only other significant location is the Fleabag Hotel where mm. Groucho and Carmen are living, which is uh, obviously easy to come by, and um, and this, you know, opulent Copacabana. Uh, Steve Cochran is an interesting presence. He um, He's familiar from lots of films in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, and also lots of TV dramas, mm-hmm. usually playing a gangster or a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I know him from three Danny Kaye films, Wonder Man, The Kid from Brooklyn, and A Song is Born. In every case, he plays a a gangster and the heavy. Uh, In 1949, he appeared with Mae West in the Broadway revival of Diamond Lil, Hmm. which is also, of course, my drag name. Uh, (laughs) Cochran is, um, I always like him on screen. He's not a great actor, but he has a distinctive presence. Um, He's uh, somewhat miscast here. Um, You just keep expecting him to beat someone up. He's too heavy, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he looks like a Eugene Levy character. Yeah, he does. <laughs> because I'm pretentious, I know him best from, from Michelangelo Antonioni's Il Grido, uh, in which he gives a lovely, okay. albeit dubbed, performance. But uh, Morrissey fans may be interested to know that he is the reason why, why Morrissey's first name is Stephen. He was named after Steve Cochran by his mother, who was a fan <laughs> Well, we've gotten Barry Manilow and Morrissey into this podcast. Now, can we get them out? <laughs> uh, so, uh, Groucho's first big scene um, is with uh, him and Carmen trying to sneak back into the booth with an E on the end hotel mm-hmm. uh, where they're staying. Um, this is the scene where he reveals that uh, they've been engaged for almost 10 years. Um, they try to sneak past the sleeping clerk, and uh, this is sort of a sympathy scene. It has a little bit of a park bench quality mm-hmm. to it. Uh, they can't afford their room. They're uh, you know on the lam, for, not on the lam, but trying to evade the um, management of the hotel. Um, a Mr. Green, who is the manager of the hotel, um, gives Groucho a little piece of advice and- that he should leave the act. Yeah. Uh, Groucho and Carmen are a double act, but... Yeah. Uh, he's advised to leave the act and just be Carmen's agent because she's the one with the talent. Wouldn't you much rather live at the Waldorf instead of a flea bag like this? Wouldn't you rather eat at 21 instead of those sidearm beaneries where you eat now? That's Dick Elliott. Uh, you might know from It's a Wonderful Life. He's the guy on the porch yelling for uh, George Bailey to kiss her. Ah. 
Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's another connection with uh, room service. Yeah. It shares cast members with It's a Wonderful Life. And he was later the mayor of Mayberry in the first season of the Andy Griffith show. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there. A few minutes later, Grouch is up in his room and he's remembering the conversation. You could live at the Waldorf. You could eat at the colony. It's at 21. Oh, pardon me. I mean 21. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is maybe the best gag in the picture. <laughs> Uh, that's really, I mean, that's pretty brilliant. It even feels sort of ahead of its mm, time yeah, as a sort yeah. of meta-textual joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, remembering what he's been told, Groucho sort of misremembers it and then corrects the remembered voice of Mr. Green. And apologizes. And apologizes. Yeah, uh, yeah that's great. I mean, that's um, that, that that does feel uh, ex- not just meta-textual, but um, it plays with the medium in ways mm-hmm. that we, we it doesn't seem too common to films of the 40s. Yeah. Uh, we also have a seal in this scene. Groucho has been stealing food from various animal acts, which are also staying at this theatrical hotel. One of them is a seal named Genevieve. Um, we've had seals in uh, Horse Feathers and at the circus. And um, uh, isn't there a third seal? Maybe this is the third seal. Anyway, a lot of seals. Now, this is, is this the same one? I asked this last time. I didn't see a badge on this seal. There's no badge on that one there. <laughs> This stuff is okay. The business of being, you know, impoverished and hungry in a hotel room uh, reminds us, of course, of uh, room service. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Groucho has good lines here. He delivers them well. It never quite adds up to a a really funny scene. We never get the kind of comic uh, momentum that uh, is is so important to the best Groucho and Marx Brothers appearances. But it's not bad. It sustains itself and, mm. and he's amusing. I quite like the unnecessarily uh, chaotic job he, he makes of trying to hide that fish when uh, all he needs to do is just, just put it inside his jacket. But he tries about six <laughs> different things first, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a little Harpo-like, uh, just the idea that he has this fish just in his pocket. It's not uh, <laughs> wrapped or contained in anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, and the managers of all these animal acts come to the door knowing that uh, the monkey's peanuts and the seal's fish are going to be with Groucho. <laughs> Carmen serves them a single hard-boiled egg, which Groucho carefully slices and contemplates as he eats it. And according to Gloria Jean, uh, hard-boiled eggs and carrots were all that she ate off-screen, Carmen Miranda. Hmm. Yeah, maybe that was just one of her eggs. <laughs> Gloria Jean didn't didn't like her very much, so maybe there's a, an element of uh, hyperbole there. But that's what she claimed. You know, it's easy to overlook the fact that at the start of the film, Groucho and Carmen are a performing couple, though it's not really made clear exactly what they did as a team, uh, or even what Groucho does at all. So, do we know anything about their act? No, it'd be good to be good to see them, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a shame we don't get a, yeah. a little uh, snippet of them. Yeah, that's surprising. You would you would think there'd be a number for the two of them. Um, we now have the first, uh, well, actually, it's not the first song because we had an opening number, but there's an audition scene at the Copa. Mm-hmm. The, the two best songs in this picture are the two that were not written by Sam Coslow. Um, one is a Kalmar and Ruby number, which I, I know we'll talk about. Groucho sings later in the movie. Uh, here, uh, Carmen Miranda sings one of her hits, Tico Tico. Uh, it's actually pronounced Tico Tico. Yeah, 
Yes. Uh, and we also meet Andy Russell in this scene. Uh, yeah. Carmen Miranda is not the only Latin star in this movie. Hmm. Um, although he doesn't quite seem it, Andy Russell uh, was born Andres Rabago, and his song hits are Besame Mucho, Amor, also the somewhat more uh, anglicized What a Difference a Day Made. Mm. Uh, he was known as the original Latin crossover artist, and um, he had a pretty extensive career on stage, film, radio, and television in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America. Uh, he was at the height of his popularity when this film came out, and I think it was his bid to become a movie star in, in the United States, which he never quite did. Um, I like him. I like him. He's got a sort of a nebbishy presence. Yeah. And I, unlike a lot of these guys we had at MGM, Groucho's not hesitant to go off on him a little and give him a little Zeppo zinger. Uh, he got, That's true, yeah. He does it a couple times. I'll play one in a few minutes. But uh, I don't know. There's something about him. He, not, he's not particularly talented as an actor, but I like his presence. I think he's an, an example of the yeah, slightly likeable. haphazard casting that, that sort of besets the film in that he was a, a very big star on radio and it, it was presumed that you know that therefore he would be a shoe in for the movies but he's actually he's quite i he seems a bit uncomfortable to me he's he's a bit uh gauche and, and obviously uh although it's it's not um it's not a, a particularly nice way to judge performers but you know he, he doesn't have much uh physical appeal which um uh, you know, Groucho. Uh, a lot of the reviewers did did say that, and uh, and Groucho said uh, he's supposed to be going places. My 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 bet is the only place he's going is the dentist. He does have uh, some fairly prominent gnashes, which uh, which I think limit his his romantic yes. appeal. But he just he seems a bit uncomfortable in his in his own skin. He seems a little bit. Uh, mm. You know, like, very much like a a person who's debuting before the camera. Yeah. Also in the scene, Groucho. Uh, he's introduced to, to Steve Hunt, the, the manager, and, you know, he's trying to pretend that uh, they, they go back. Do I know you? Do you know me, Lionel Q. Devereaux, your old roommate at Yale? I never went to Yale. Remember those good old days at Erasmus High? I never went to Erasmus High. At least you do remember when we graduated from public school 27. No. Say, for a man with no education, you've done all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a punchline there. That's good yeah, stuff, yeah. yeah. That's in the right spirit. <laughs> and and it's true that Groucho is given lines, you know, he's he's allowed to insult uh, Andy Russell. Usually the jokes are about Andy being kind of dumb. How would you like to play Cupid? Cupid? Well, I don't mind the wings and the bow and arrow, but uh, would I have to take off my clothes? No. My plan is just as simple as you are. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think this might be um, a deliberate effort to deal with Andy Russell's slight awkwardness, mm -hmm. you know, like we're going to cast him as a kind of naive character who, you know, he's he's a singer at this club and he's kind of the voice of romance, but he's also this sort of gawky kid who's easily easily used by the, the more sophisticated characters. Um, and, oh, this is also where we first meet uh, Gloria Jean, who is playing uh, Steve Cochran's secretary, Anne, um, child star of opera as well as radio, um, who um, appeared in a number of films in the 40s, uh, most prominently W.C. Fields' niece in Never Give a Sucker and Even mm. Break. Mm -hmm. um, as she's also with uh, Olsen and Johnson in Ghost Catch Catchers. Um, in both of those films precede this one by some years, um, and yet she's only 21 here. 
Um, she, uh, uh, in another connection with room service, we know that um, while room service was being made, Groucho took a sort of protective paternal interest in Ann Miller mm-hmm. um, and defended her when members of the crew were uh, giving her a hard time about her naivete, or perhaps there's a suggestion that there was some a- aspect of sexual inappropriateness in the way she was spoken to and about. And um, this is a nice um, image of Groucho that we get occasionally, the avuncular defender of young female virtue. Uh, part of the reason it's so charming is because it's the opposite of his comic character. Uh, I think it's in uh, a biography um, of her called A Little Bit of Heaven. Um, she's quoted as um, having appreciated Groucho's, uh, the care that he took of her. Yeah, and once again, the, as I mentioned before, it, this is confusing romantically who we're supposed to want her to be with. You know, she she has this thing for Steve, but he he's ignoring her. And then Andy asks her out, then she says no but she says well ask me again next week so you think oh maybe something's going to happen there and then things stop and start and you never mm. never get resolved so carmen is is uh, you know steve cochran uh, seems to think carmen is okay when she sings her number and then he asks groucho to, to list his other clients uh, groucho's list of clients is a racing form and we get some jokes mm-hmm. about performers with racehorse names um one of which is mademoiselle fifi uh, interestingly, as soon as this name is spoken, uh, Steve is instantly interested and wants Groucho's imaginary client, Mademoiselle Fifi, to audition. There's a little strange aspect of the story here. Um, it starts here and it continues throughout the whole film where Mademoiselle Fifi, the French songstress Carmen will pose as, is instantly assumed to be and regarded as this very exotic performer who's fascinating and all you have to do is hear her name Mm -hmm. to be intrigued. Whereas, you know, the equally exotic uh, Carmen character is seen as this very plain, like, eh, she's all right, but she's no Fifi. Uh, The movie... Never quite deals with it's that. It's very strange because, because you know, what the, the act that she's doing is Carmen Miranda's act. So, to all intents and purposes, Carmen Miranda is being is being described as a well, yeah, it's another it's another one of those. You know, we've the other agent says, you know, if you said you wanted a, a Latin American singer, I've got hundreds of them. You know, and that kind of was the situation then. You know, she was kind of slightly passing out of out of fashion, and there were hundreds of others. So, in a way, the film is is quite. It's it's set up to be quite rude to to her her actual act her actual persona and uh, yeah the way the, yes. the way they they yeah. leap at this at this uh, French French one and and all right we'll have we'll have her as well you know that would be fine if it was if she was if that was another kind of impersonation she was doing but but that is Carmen Miranda right. yeah yeah she's not like, she's not underpointed it's not as mm. talented or that is good. The plot is hatched, uh, you know, that Carmen will pose as this other character, Fifi. Um, and um, there's a nice moment when Groucho suggests that these two could be twins. And uh, Carmen protests, you know, how is that possible if she was born in Paris and, and I was born in Brazil? And he says, it's only four hours by plane. <laughs> Fifi auditions at the Copa and everyone is entranced. Mm-hmm. Steve hires both Carmen and Fifi. And so now we have, now we're off to the races. What I don't understand is why, when he likes Madame Fifi so much, why can't they just say, "Yeah, well, this is yeah, this is Carmen. This is another uh, persona she does." Yes. Why? I don't understand why they have to <laughs> pretend it's a different person. He could just say, "Yeah, this, she does all these 
you know, personas, and this is one of them. Yeah, that's a good point. That's one of those, uh, why, why wouldn't the thing that makes sense happen? Because then there'd be no plot here. <laughs> uh, but just when we're off to the races, we stop for another mediocre production number. <laughs> another 40 songs. Uh, yeah, there's too, way too much of this. Yeah, somebody um, should do an edit of this without all the songs. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, this is not the worst song in the picture, but it's still not very good. My heart was doing the bolero under the stars in Rio de Janeiro, sings Andy Russell. There's a um, beautiful moment uh, with Groucho posing as Fifi in the, in, in the following dressing room scene. Um, and now Groucho and Carmen are in, engaged in this plot, trying to uh, work out as a kind of timetable how she's going to deal with appearing as Carmen in the main room and as Fifi in the cocktail lounge. Mm -hmm. At 10 o'clock, you're Carmen Navarro. That's easy, isn't it? You're downstairs at 10-1, singing as Carmen. Finish at 10-6. You're back here at 10-7. And start to change. You're finished dressing at 10-11, and now you're Mademoiselle Fifi. You leisurely race upstairs to the cocktail lounge and do your numbers, Mademoiselle Fifi. You're a big hit, but you don't stop to take a bow because you do downstairs as Carmen. By the way, how are you on roller skates? Um, and just when we've gotten a taste of that, there's another song. Um, <laughs> this time it's Carmen and Andy singing a song called He Doesn't Have a Thing to Sell. I'm not playing that. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I'm not no, playing a clip of that. Nobody's going to challenge me on this. As the as the uh, as the story continues to unfold, Groucho winds up telling Steve that he and Carmen are engaged, which will be a problem later when um, when Steve takes romantic interest in Fifi. Um, and now we get a, in a strange, um, another strange example of what Matthew describes as this kind of um, patchwork casting job. Uh, we have cameos from mm. some significant uh, journalists. Abel Green, the editor of Variety, Louis Sobel of the New York Journal American, an uh, uh, entertainment columnist, and Earl Wilson of the New York Post. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a little strange. Um, not much is made mm. of this. They've gone to the trouble to get these guys in here. Um, but they each just have a line or two. Uh, the chorus girls have the punchlines mm. in their scene. Yeah, they don't do anything, do they? They, they, uh, they, they could have used three wooden Indians from a cigar store. <laughs> yeah. Got the same they, results. They seem to be giving the film some, some prestige and sort of insider cachet, but they're really not utilized no. at all. In Variety, uh, Frank Scully reported that these three men had stand-ins, and because it is so hard to find males in California under five foot ten, schoolgirls in slacks were used. <laughs> I'm not sure if we believe that or not, but uh, the following month, Variety reports, Groucho Marx predicts that next year, Green, Sobel, and Wilson will be known as the Three Stooges. <laughs> yeah, you know, when the scene started, I wasn't sure whether these were the real guys or not, but after watching them perform for about yeah. 20 seconds you go oh, yeah. yeah there's no way they would have cast they would have cast people to play it like this yeah particularly the third one gets um gets a close-up shot doesn't he where he just sort of says hello or something i can't remember exactly what it is i mean bob can can drop in the clip but it, it after he's introduced we we cut to this shot that they've obviously taken about 50 times it's like take 59 and a mere editor abel green of variety hiya kids hello. Hello. um Hey, well, now, finally, Carmen Miranda gets to sing something. <laughs> this time, again, as Mademoiselle Fifi. You'll have to treat her swell and say, oui, oui, mademoiselle. 
or you won't be like a bee by Fifi. You say no. What's the diff? There are 50 million Frenchmen who will break the hill and kiss the hand to make a heat with Fifi. And we get a variety headline, which I guess is the outcome of uh, Abel Green's visit to the Copa in the reality of this story. Fiery Fifi flames fans. And other headlines praising Fifi. Anything about women drivers? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing about women drivers. There's a montage of the sort of quick change routine that that Carmen is subjected to here. Um, now, uh, now Steve's romantic interest in Carmen sort of becomes a factor in the story. Um, Carmen making Groucho jealous as he all evening has been flirting with chorus girls right in front of her. Um, when Groucho confronts Steve, um, <laughs> this is where the Steve Cochran problem really presents itself because <laughs> everything he says is so menacing and threatening. Fifi is going to be my girl. Carmen is your girl. And then he bends a horseshoe. <laughs> To demonstrate his brute strength. When Groucho says he's going to marry Fifi, you would expect uh, Steve to explode and go, hey, wait a minute. You said you were going to marry Carmen. What's the deal here? But no, we get a... Just a minute, Devereaux. Didn't I hear you say just the other day you were going to marry Carmen? (laughs) (laughs) He's just so understated that I thought I misunderstood the plot for a moment. That is where Groucho has his three-handed pinochle line, which Matthew uh, smartly... um, uh, Theorizes might have been written by Groucho. What are you going to do with two wise? It so happens I like to play three-handed pinochle. I, I do like the way it sets Groucho up to then try to do the same horseshoe business mm-hmm. that Steve did and then conclude uh, you can have both of them. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a good punchline, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it's a nice acting moment for Groucho, too, as he struggles to bend that horseshoe and... and to speak in a confident way while doing it. Uh, it's another note he strikes that's uh, somewhat different from his traditional screen presence. Now we now it's it's di- disclosed by the um, machinations of the plot that uh, Anne, the Gloria Jean character, is in love with her boss, Steve Cochran. Don't worry about it too much, because even the film will not resolve this particular <laughs> story. Um <laughs> But Steve is now with Fifi, and so Anne feels jilted that he is not um, maintaining their usual uh, ritual of going after work to Toots Shores, Mm -hmm. a legendary New York uh, restaurant and bar operated by Toots Shore. Um, Even more uh, jilted and heartbroken is Groucho back at the hotel. It's 3 a.m., as his neighbor informs him. Um, This is a nice way to set your clock, just... uh, annoy someone and they'll yell at you and tell you what time it is. She comes home sort of floating on air from her date with Steve. I had a flamingo. Such a beautiful, lovely, adorable flamingo. With darling French fried onions? Oui. And lovable mashed potatoes? Oui, oui. Did he try to kiss you? Oh, see, si, and, and how? Did you let him? What could I do? I am fifty, French coquette, and he's my boss. And he's so young, so rich, so handsome. Skip it. We went through that before. Did you kiss him back? Oh, yes. Yes. We better get to a no pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back in the 40s, that's about as far as they could go with the yeses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So she took her veil off then. Oh, Oh, good point. 
But she ate the filet mignon. She put it under her veil. <laughs> the, the veil, there's a little zipper. You can unzip a little slit in the veil to insert uh, food. And uh, That is an interesting point. I mean, later in the film, it'll be revealed that uh, everyone um, identifies Fifi by her distinctive kisses. Mm-hmm. But um, it is also true that the covering of her lower face is what makes her look like herself. Oh, guys, stranger things have happened. (laughs) We spend a long time on this song. I think this might, it's not saying much, but I think this might be the best of the Coslo written songs in the film. Uh, Not a great number, but um, Andy, Andy tries to convey to Anne what she should do to get Steve's attention. Uh, She should obviously sing this song. Uh, This is, uh, now I don't necessarily wish there were more of this plot line, but it is really established and then dropped. Mm. It really feels like what's being set up is that Anne and Andy will fall in love Mm. and wind up together at the end. Um, This scene seems to make that inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, He's counseling her and singing this love song, and she's kind of making eyes at him while he's singing it. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and the only real highlight here, other than the very appealing uh, face of Gloria Jean, is Andy remarking that talking is not like singing. And when you sing, you can say things that you can't say when you talk. <laughs> it's almost a Chico line. By the way, earlier in the scene, when Anne is sending flowers and she changes yeah. the order, she never c- completes saying who they're going to. She just hangs up the phone. <laughs> oh, interesting point. Is it now that that she has a her sort of fantasy of performing it on stage? Yeah, right. Yeah, that that's a bit like in those sort of forties thrillers where they they have a flashback and then they flash back within that flashback and then somebody else flashes back within that flashback. It's it, it's taking that plot just too far down the <laughs> rabbit hole, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I no doubt about that. Yeah, it's it's pretty contrived. Um, not it's not not terribly unpleasant though, and. Because so many of the songs in this movie are are a, a bit of a drag to get through, um, this one at least you know there's stuff going on here. The dream sequence is sort of interesting. Uh, the way we zoom in on her head and the scene emerges from it. Also, in her dream, um, Mademoiselle Fifi is Steve's secretary mm-hmm. and sends her a small bunch of violets. Yeah, and in her fantasy, she has to change outfits. Yes, she gets a little yeah, sort of laugh, doesn't she? First, going on in in her hilarious secretary's outfit, and then uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it emerges that a Hollywood movie producer named Anatole Murphy, you old so and so, is interested in in Fifi's contract. Um, uh, the other agent, Liggett, uh, approaches Groucho about buying Fifi's contract and offers him $5,000. Groucho uh, can't believe his luck and accepts Mm. it. Um, And then we learn that, um, uh, according to Steve, Fifi's contract could be worth $100,000. I love that it's an afterthought to this producer that uh, they have to check under her veil to see what she looks like. (laughs) Yeah, the star has half a face, $100,000. She keeps arguing that Carmen is the real star. Carmen's much better than I am. Um, And everyone keeps telling her, no, you're crazy. Carmen's fine, but Fifi's the one. (laughs) Back in the hotel, Groucho has all those flowers from room service. (laughs) As well as a diamond bracelet. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the the inevitable happens. Um, 
Groucho uh, realizes the folly of his uh, plot, uh, returns to the Copa and tries to buy a cigar from his own wife, Kay Gorsey. How much are your cigars? They're a dollar apiece. I was just browsing. Don't you have any nickel cigars? Yes, but they're 40 cents. And it ends with him giving her an eyebrow wiggle, and adorably, she gives him one right back. Yeah, it's a nice moment. It's I think it's my favorite of the Groucho girl encounters in this movie, um, partly because of the extra textual fact of, of that being Kay, but uh, also that eyebrow wiggle at the end is a nice According touch. to Groucho, she took the role so that she can get enough money to get her mother a new set of teeth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and now we have the, the scene that I is inevitably the, the favorite part of this movie and and maybe uh, for Marx Brothers fans and and many might also call it the the main reason this is worth seeing. Uh, Groucho at Steve Cochran's table in the Copa starts touting another act he represents, uh, which turns out, of course, to be the old Groucho in his old makeup, singing an old Kalmar and Ruby song written for but not included in, in Go West called Go West, Young Man. Mr. Horace Greeley was no fool I'm sure that you'll agree with me That Greeley was no fool But he is getting at is that Mr. Greeley was no fool The wisdom of the man can be denied by none For he is the one who Before you go to Buffalo, to Baltimore, to Borneo, to Eastern Pennsylvania, or Sudan. Go west, young man. If you go to that land, Sonny, you will have a lot of money if you bring the money with you when you come. To the long prairie. She don't do nothing, and she don't know nothing, and she don't want nothing but a horse and a cowboy, for she just keeps rolling along. You can ride a bucking bronco or a pony. You can cut a calf in half and make baloney. Go west, young man. Go ride up there and give them the very best you can. Don't go east, don't go north, don't go south, have a care. Don't go up, don't go down, don't go here, don't go there. If you can't get a seat in the subway. They're very fair, they always are, of course. A cowboy and his missus went to court for a divorce. The cowboy got the children, and the missus got the horse. Go west! 
Well, what do you think? Do I know how to pick him? Oh, he's not bad. How much do you want for him? You couldn't afford it. Now, shouldn't this have been another fantasy sequence? Uh, yeah. Uh, again, this is really confusing, isn't it? Even if you buy the fact that they're two different people, they're two different people, how did he get the, the set and all the girls out there so quickly? Yeah. And we know that he hasn't got any other acts. Uh, the whole point of, yeah. of him is that it, Carmen is the only act he's got. And so suddenly he's got this this other act, which is essentially him but unlike Carmen and Fifi it isn't really him it is a different person who nonetheless is him but Groucho's kind of comments about oh isn't he good and so on you know obviously play on the fact of it being him so again it's an idea that just hasn't been quite thought through which is quite endearing but uh what if that was his his performance what he did in the act with Carmen mm, just had never seen it. yeah it makes you wonder what he did do then if if this guy you know who, who uh he represents suddenly uh, you know, is of that standard. But do we know, I meant to say um, earlier, do we know for absolute 100% copper bottom certain that it was written for Go West? I mean, I know that's the obvious assumption. I don't know if I've ever actually seen the... I guess we don't really know that. It's just that we know Kalmar and Ruby wrote mm. an early version of Go West, and here's this song. But yeah, I don't know that, that I've ever seen, you know, hard confirmation of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely was pre-existing. Um, Coslow says that, that Groucho um, insisted it personally that it, that, it be, uh, that it be included and, mm. and uh, Coslow had to pay an extra 2000 for it. I think, um, oh, certainly I say in my book, but I don't remember where I got it from, that he had performed it live before on, on some of his army tours or, or something. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely is a, you know, is a pre-existing number that, that he got in there. Um, but it just it, prompt, it prompted one train of thought that it hadn't occurred to me before, which is that if he was in the business of wanting to do a, a, a specialty number in the old Groucho guise and was sorting through the you know the back catalogue for things that hadn't been used yet, uh, it's a wonder he didn't go for Hackenbush, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the two songs seem to have a similarity, mm. uh, not just because they were seemingly created for and then excluded from MGM Marx Brothers movies. Um, but they have a kind of, you know, they're pleasing mid-level Kalmar and Ruby numbers. Mm. I wonder if maybe MGM owned the the name Dr. Hackenbush, and that's maybe, why... Maybe, yeah. You know, maybe... That, Although that I'm sure, you know, they just here. bung him a few quid and they'd be, they, they wouldn't sort of sit on it too, too uh, jealously, but... Or just change it to Quackenbush. Nobody yes. had a problem with that. <laughs> You know, so we said we were going to talk about this earlier. We sort of skipped it. We should, maybe should stop now and talk about the mustache. Right. This is a good time to address it. You know, um, first of all, we should say that regardless of what everybody thinks, what everybody says, what's been reported, this was a fake mustache. Right. Uh, Groucho says it in a letter to Earl Wilson. You think that uh, mm -hmm. Matthew quotes in his book? And it's pretty obvious, you know, but it, it's supposed to be somewhat of a real one. And he, this, this gives you an idea of what he should have worn in room service. If he would have looked like this, I think uh, the film would have worked a lot better. Yes. Because you would have known you're worth watching the typical Groucho. It's uh, similar to his You Bet Your Life look, although it is um, it is indeed a, um, a fake mustache. And you can kind of tell it's fake, but it's not, uh, you know, as brazenly fake as the old grease paint one. Groucho it, said it made him look like a cross between his father, Mephistopheles, and an opium peddler on the Mexican border. Yeah, yeah. It does look like Frenchie's mustache a bit. Mm. I, if, I think, I mean, this is not a big deal. And obviously, this was the correct choice as opposed to the old grease paint mustache. But... 
Um, it's a little fussy, this mustache. Um, and yeah. I think if he had grown one the way he did for You Bet Your Life, um, this character would have been slightly more believable. Just because this particular false mustache just looks very styled and carefully combed, it, it's a little... Um, I don't know. It's a little out of keeping with the moth-eaten character he's playing, and um, it just seems a little more dapper and, and fancy than it should. I'm be. just looking up your your essay to see what see what you've got to say about it. Here it is, the yeah. Devereux. Yeah. I called this one the Devereux. <laughs> and do you think that the fact that he had worn this hair made him more comfortable to go without a grease paint one in Love Happy? It could be, uh, but in Love Happy, it's a it's a an organic mustache that right. he's grown out of his own face. Right, just the fact though, though, that he didn't feel like he had to wear the grease paint. I think he yeah. had gone past that barrier. Mm. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, he was also already doing You Bet Your Life by that time, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get a little bit of his Jolson imitation in this number um, and um, a, a long falsetto passage, which is amusing. Uh, when he asks for... Uh, dozen beautiful cowgirls and they appear and he says to the camera ah if only it were that simple in real life Mm. uh seems to anticipate the almost verbatim line that uh, woody allen has in annie hall after introducing marshall McLuhan to the (laughs) pretentious intellectual on the movie line how you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing boy if life were only like this it is an interesting choice, isn't it, to do this song? We 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 need to ponder this a bit a bit more because, given that we know it was included at his his own insistence, uh, that it wasn't something that they foisted on him, um, it seems like it's it's going against his every instinct. Uh, you know, in that it, that's what he's consciously trying to to put behind him is that character he then personally uh, shoehorns back in in this incredibly contrived way it doesn't seem to really fit with his his mindset at the time I, I i can't really i mean i think i speculate in my book that maybe he was just saying you know look i can give you a bit of this if you want but you know let, let's let's kind of enjoy this but then let's put that aside and and this is what i'm doing now but other than that which is you know not much of a guess really I can't imagine why he would have wanted to do it. It seemed like the last thing he'd want to do. There's really no reason he couldn't have done the song as Devereaux. Um, he could have just gone up and said, hey, I'm a performer. I could fill a slot for you and mm. gone up and done the song himself. Mm. You know, It would have been very easy for him to, for them to go another way. In the context of the movie, it, you could argue um, that it's sort of too clever for its own good for all these reasons. Mm. Uh, but as a standalone piece, if you just watch this, yeah. Uh, it does have, you know, it does have a lot of ripples. Um, Groucho in his, you know, sort of in his later persona, sitting at a table watching, in effect, his younger self perform um, some material from his classic period. Um, you know, it's there is something deep about it. Uh, in uh, the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia, yeah. Glenn Mitchell um, interprets this as, uh, the younger Groucho persona coming to the rescue uh, of the older one in his time of need. Um, like, you just rub a lamp and he appears. I, I think this mm. reflects the conflict in Groucho, that he, on one hand, was desperately eager to move beyond the old persona. On the other hand, it was his claim to greatness. Exactly. And, um, mm. 
Yeah. It's almost like something you'd come up with if you were writing a heavily fictionalized biopic about him. You know, it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's very much of a piece yeah. with all those stories about you know, like when he when he got off the Hollywood caravan train and nobody recognised him and he went back on and put the moustache on, or he was stopped yeah. by yeah. a cop who didn't mm-hmm. believe that it was him because he did. You know, it it seems to kind of fit almost almost kind of biopic neatly into into that all that stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, so maybe Scott Alexander wrote this part. <laughs> <laughs> Devereaux is my name. Would be the but it's interesting that, that Steve Hunt seems to be the only one that seems to be conscious that these guys sort of look alike because he's looking back and forth at him. Mm. He says, "Oh, he's not bad." Uh, Steve does, and then he leans in close to Groucho in a sort of classic comedy stance and says, "How much do you want for him?" And Groucho says, as Chico once said in Animal Crackers, "You couldn't afford it." Now, was this supposed to be the scene where Chico and Harpo? We're supposed to run through. One wonders, yeah. You know, and reading some of the advanced uh, publicity, you get the impression that it might have actually been filmed and then wasn't put in the put in. Well, there are two. There are two um, references. Uh, one is Groucho himself saying that that originally the idea was that there was going to be a, a joke where he said, "I wish Harpo and Chico were here," and they run past um, in costume. Groucho did actually say that himself. Um, whether that's true or not. But then there is a different report, um, on, on the shooting, which says that Harpo and Chico were on set the first day in costume. And this report says to, as a kind of, you know, to, to give him a bit of a boost, you know, as, a, as a, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something like, you know, uh, as support for him. So obviously that's ridiculous. They wouldn't do that. But if it's true that they were there in costume, uh, which I wouldn't believe at all if it weren't for Groucho's other comment what then yes one really does wonder if they actually got as far as 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 shooting that and i and i imagine that would certainly be the natural place to put it when groucho is is his old self but then why on earth would they cut it actually i got in the air i got this news clipping and i don't even know where it's from but i can find out it says let's see groucho plays two roles the new type poor man's ronald coleman blah 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 and the Grouch of Old, with a quick gag scene in which she turns to the audience and says, I wish Harpo and Chico were here, whereupon Harpo and Chico run through the scene. Groucho also sings in the pictures. So this is like implying that it was it was actually there. Hmm. But why would they cut it? There's also a report that yeah. that um, that uh, Carmen and Ruby wrote a new song for the film, a duet for for uh, for Groucho and, and Carmen, which, is, as we've said, is one of the surprising omissions when you think of how many songs there are in here that there isn't one. Uh, according to to one report, they did uh, they they did write one. I, for one, am I think glad that the Harpo and Chico cameo didn't happen. Uh, just because the idea doesn't seem all that strong. And it, for Groucho to just say he wished they were there and then have them run through, mm. it seems sort of sad. Yeah, it's like, hey, this film isn't working. <laughs> yeah. But again, of a piece, you know. <laughs> yeah. Too bad Zeppo isn't here. <laughs> I wish Zeppo were here. <laughs> Which Oscar Shaw I mean, a, <laughs> a really clever uh, Harpo and Chico appearance would have been welcome, I suppose. But that that sounds a little desperate. So the song then, uh, overall, we're, we're giving the thumbs up to. Uh, I mean, I think... There is a slight risk that that one can just be a little bit too grateful for it. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I think if it was in Go West, it would it would it would fit. You wouldn't think, wow, that song really gave Go West a lift. Yeah, as a standalone piece, it's fine, but in the context of the film, it's just very curious. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I do like it. I think it's nice, but I, I just think you know, we. I think there's the risk of of being too grateful for it and and building it up as as more than it than it is really. It's okay. Yeah, uh, like Doctor Hackenbush, it's it sort of <laughs> it it reminds us of of its inspirations um, mm-hmm. just enough to be enjoyable on its own terms. Yeah. Um, but as a as a piece of songwriting, it's sort of you're aware that this is the attempt to write another great number for Groucho like those early ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe I am too grateful for this scene, but I, but I am grateful for it. And um, in the, in the, the Groucho and Marx brothers canon, it's uh it's an unusual one. It, it, um, uh, it acknowledges something that uh, we all know to be true, but that isn't supposed to pop up in context. Mm-hmm. So there's a joke here that, uh, I don't get. Uh, I'm going to play it for you. Maybe you guys could, could explain it to me. Sure. All I have to do is figure out how Carmen and Fifi can be 3,000 miles apart. Oh, that's impossible. I cannot be in two different places at the same time. I don't know why not. Boston and Philadelphia are in two different places at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice that joke. I like that one. I don't get it. <laughs> it's just yeah, nonsense, that's... isn't it? Is it? It's just nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, he's saying it's possible that, you know, that here are two places... That are, that are different places, but they're there in the same time. I don't know. He says it so sincerely. It's sort of like this means something. I suppose it just doesn't. <laughs> but mean she it. she makes a kind of stand in for the audience face, doesn't she? She makes a. Does anybody follow that kind of expression? As I, I think. Okay, I kept right. I kept thinking about like what 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 what. what? <laughs> yeah, I think oh, that's a pretty good joke. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess in in grease paint that would have made sense, but not with a real real mustache. Okay. <laughs> Well, it is true. I mean, very often the material that uh, coming from the grease paint Groucho just seems like brilliant and audacious and and um, so full of like distinctive comic attitude. The same material could be coming from your uncle at a party, you know, and it would just be like, oh, here comes Mr. Shtick. Exactly. Yeah. So now now we, we rocket toward the climax of this plot. Um <laughs> Uh, Anne and Carmen uh, make uh, common cause um, because they both need to get rid of Fifi and because she wants to be with Steve, mm-hmm. who is uh, uh, obsessed with Fifi, and Carmen because she's tired of playing this game. Um, she and Groucho conspire to stage a fight between Carmen and Fifi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they basically tear the dressing room apart while Carmen yells. And um, when... Steve and company finally break into the room in response to all the noise. Carmen tells them that Fifi run away through the window. She run away through the window. My investment. <laughs> Back at the hotel, Groucho and Carmen discuss Fifi's quote unquote death and are overheard by a little old lady. Reading a um, racing form. Yeah. <laughs> right. Looking for Devereaux's uh, client <laughs> list, I suppose. Uh, yeah, we, uh, some comic opportunity is missed here. It should be one of those great scenes where somebody overhears something and misinterprets it as as something terrible. Um, but it doesn't, we don't quite get there. She goes into the phone booth and says, give me the police, and then takes a huge hairpin out of her hair like she's got to fend for herself now. It's like somebody might be coming after her. <laughs> look, look for that next time. <laughs> I will. I'm going to watch this right after this uh, conversation. Um, there's a confrontation back at the Copa, the police arrive, and Groucho beats a hasty retreat right into the girls' dressing room. Uh, 
there are some nice little gags here. Deborah, what are you doing in here? I'm scouting for the Boston Red Sox. Don't let them take me. I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I'd like to spend it here. What about those careers you promised yeah. us, huh? Girls, I've thought it over. You don't want a career. What you ought to do is settle down. Get yourself a husband. Anybody's husband. Oh. Grab him. Oh. Oh. It's also nice when... Um, what were those policemen he, hiding in the closet for, though? What were they waiting for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to surprise him, I guess. Uh, but this is a, a a good scene. This scene actually builds a little comic momentum with Groucho playing checkers against himself. That is um, very funny. And I love it. Again, in a kind of new comic tone for him. I didn't do it, I tell you, and I'm glad. Glad I didn't do it. And if I had it all to do over again, I, I wouldn't do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, that's very different. Yeah. And also very funny. Yeah. And it's so ungroucho like that. I even thought possibly they might have dubbed in another voice. Sorry, I'm just I'm I'm watching yeah. this woman on make the make the phone call. I was so intrigued by that hat pin reference that I'm now I've found it in the film I'm watching it. So yes, it is to defend herself with against this <laughs> this murderer on the loose. I think she looks about nervously. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, there's a weird little moment where Steve kind of incidentally mentions that uh, he's. Not in love with Fifi, he likes Anne. That's all we ever get in terms of uh, resolution for <laughs> that story. That's a big payoff, yeah. Andy and Anne go, what, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, on one hand, I don't necessarily wish that they spent more time wrapping that story up, but it is a little strange. It's so carefully established and then just disposed of here. Um, and then we have, uh, in order to demonstrate that Fifi has not been murdered by Groucho, um, Carmen enters as Fifi. The veil is removed, but uh, she's unable to sing as Fifi because she's, I don't know, nervous? Well, wait a minute. First of all, when they rip off her veil, isn't that like, they're all like accosting her. This is like a religious thing that she's not supposed to be doing, taking the veil off. They're like, let's get her, guys. And they just all go up to her and rip off the veil. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't exactly a pleasant moment. Especially when they have just recently thought she was had been murdered. And now they... They uh, switch to attacking her so quickly. But yeah, why does she sing so badly? Yeah, I, it's the plot needs that to happen, but yeah. it's not really. I think the lady justified. with the uh, hairpin like stabbed her. I think, <laughs> they cut that scene out. And she can demonstrate that she is Fifi only by kissing all of these guys. Andy, mm. then Steve, then Joe. <laughs> um, and so the joke here is that Fifi has been getting around. <laughs> Uh, she even apologizes to Groucho for what's about to be revealed. Mm. I don't know. It's it's you can see the comic idea here, but it doesn't quite come off. And then the the producer at the end. I mean, he's just so over the top here that it has to be like a, a parody of what a a producer would do, right? What a story! What a picture this will make! I'll buy the girl. I'll buy the story too. Get me a phone. Call Hollywood. T tell them to start building sets. Why? I can see it all now. Start building sets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stop building a set. <laughs> yeah. We'll do it in Maybe that reflects the. Uh... But I think that was a satire of like an over the top ending. I really do. And the fact that it it immediately sets up this fake credit sequence yeah. where Lionel Q. Devereaux is credited with doing everything on the the now film within a film. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's clearly over the top in a in a knowing way and then even as the film fades out the the romance confusion continues because 
Carmen and Andy are kissing, and then Groucho like gets in between them, like, "Hey, you stay away from her." So, yeah. To the end, none none of these are resolved, and you don't know what's going on with any of the romances. But like so much about this movie, it it's all you know. It's sort of almost great, you know, and yet the way it comes off is like not quite good. But this <laughs> this movie could have been, and maybe should have been, a classic example of these kind of backstage stories, which often ended this way with like, "I know, we'll make a movie out of the movie you've just seen." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it is such a it's such a um, time honored cliche. If you if it had just been done with a little more, um, I don't know, intelligence, I suppose. Um, this could be delightfully cheesy stuff. So I, I guess now is the time to mention the, the fact that um, although the film performed much as one would expect it to from watching it now as a, uh, a very, very minor hit and a financial disappointment, the early reviews were all rapturously positive. It was a yeah. film that during its production and after it was previewed, everybody seemed to think would be an absolute smash hit. The reviews talk about it as if it's the fu- you know the uh, too funny to describe. Uh, one of the funniest things we've ever seen uh, that that Groucho and and Carmen are, are a, a Soco team, and uh, the Evening Independent says uh, Groucho for the first time in his screen career is without Harpo and Chico, and it is an improvement. <laughs> and 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 many many other reviews all all saying the same thing that this is just going to be the biggest hit it's one of the best and funniest things you've ever seen and then the audiences said eh, i'm quite right too yeah and then the next wave of reviews was slightly more downbeat um but yeah it's true it it was uh it did get a lot of these rapturous reviews um and it's a movie i i get the sense that people very much wanted to like it um and i think that's kind of how i feel about it too i mm. i really want to like this movie and i i succeed somewhat um but uh it just doesn't quite satisfy its its potential one one review that i like um is from James Agee in Time Magazine. Um, Agee, of course, was a big uh, admirer of the Marx Brothers, and um, he's known for having said that the worst movie they might ever make would be more worth seeing than just about anything else. Um, This is what he thought of Copacabana. He says, the film will gratify such admirers of Groucho Marx as have always wanted to see the face behind the black paint smear of mustache. As was predictable, the face that launched a thousand quips is a keen one, as adaptable to drama as to comedy, should Groucho ever feel the urge to go both smooth-faced and serious. Not so wildly zany as the best Marx Brothers collaborations, nor is it designed to be, but it is an unpretentiously entertaining movie. And Groucho is as moth-eaten and glib as ever. That seems fair. Yeah, yeah, go along with that, I think. Photoplay was decidedly less enthusiastic, calling it lots of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I always love the trade papers because they always have an eye on the business side of things. The Independent Exhibitors Film Bulletin uh, griped that despite the tireless efforts of Groucho Marx to lift the level of this lavishly mounted feature, Copacabana is low-level corn from start to finish. And then it goes on to advise... Um, you know, theater owners about how to promote it and <laughs> how to make people come and see it. De- is it Deseret? 
Deseret or maybe Desiree. Deseret or Desiree News, anyway, said that a, a new comedy combination is born, Groucho Marx and Carmen Miranda, and it would be nice to have just one penny for every laugh their hilarious antics will evoke throughout the world in this first picture and in subsequent ones, which undoubtedly they will make by public demand. For if ever two comedians seemed created for each other, Groucho and Carmen do in this entertaining picture. And so on, and more of the same. Yeah, and and the promotional materials are very... Groucho loves Carmen was the uh, slogan that used an, an awful lot of the ads for this film when it came out. Really pushing them as a couple and as a combination that they obviously thought people would be really interested to see them together. Copacabana is Copa Colossal, according to the original ads. Um, it also it was, is obvious that a big success was expected um, based on a lot of the news items surrounding the um, production and release of this movie. Um, it was reported in uh, February of, um, or pardon me, in, in yeah, in, in January of 1947, it was reported that Groucho um, was meeting with the Schuberts in New York about starring in a forthcoming edition of the Ziegfeld Follies. Um, and then the following month, Variety reported that Groucho was going to play the songwriter Fred Fisher in a biopic to be directed by Alfred E. Green. Um, we haven't mentioned Alfred E. Green yet, but he directed Copacabana, um, and he was best known for early biopics, the Jolson story, the Jackie Robinson story eventually, and the Eddie Cantor story. Um, he also directed Betty Davis to her first Oscar in Dangerous in 1935 and directed uh, Tars and Spars, the screen debut of Sid Caesar, the year before Copacabana. Um, an ancient incompetent, according to Groucho. <laughs> an ancient incompetent, yeah. You know, fans of Groucho, they just seen him in a Marx Brothers film, and perhaps they were like, hey, I'll wait for the next Marx Brothers film. I don't need to pay for one Marx Brother when three are going to come around again. I wonder if there was any type of uh, backlash. Possibly, yeah. It does seem like uh, it's a little, it's reminiscent of room service in a way that there was all this very grand hype and very, everyone was really set up to expect a masterpiece. Um, and there was talk that this was going to set the new direction for the career going forward. Um, and then it didn't quite work out that way. But I don't know, planning to make another movie with the same director and, and again, a sort of change of pace for Groucho. Uh, there's also a news item from June of 1947, um, after the film had just been released, uh, in which it's reported that, uh, I quote, the success of Groucho as a single in Copacabana has Chico Marx paging United Artists for a solo <laughs> comedy for himself. <laughs> that would have been nice. I would have loved to see Chico Cabana. <laughs> From everything that we've read, it just seems that when the film was done, that everyone, including Groucho, was quite happy with it, creatively and everything. Uh, I guess the only thing that stopped it from being a, a new direction for him was uh, the box office. Mm. Mm. Isn't there a, a letter to Miriam where he says it's astonishingly good or something like that? Yes, he said the, the 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 first preview of it was astonishingly good, and the second one uh, went even better. They seemed very well satisfied with it, that is, the producers, and the audience loved it. Copacabana is no great noteworthy artistic achievement, but it will make a lot of money, and it is a vindication of my determination to veer slightly away from the old character. 
So uh, yeah, they he really was expecting it to uh, to hit big. It did not make a lot of money, in fact. Um, and uh, I'm I'm looking now at Bosley Crowther's review in the New York Times, uh, July twelfth, nineteen forty seven. That tells you something too. The movie had been in theaters for a while before a review found its way into the Times. Mm-hmm. Um, Crowther writes, um, if you have seen one nightclub picture, you've pretty well seen them all. And that goes for Copacabana. (laughs) Is it possible that the reaction was to Carmen and not Groucho, that people just didn't want to see her? I don't see a lot of negative criticism of her in the reviews. Not that she gave a bad performance, just that perhaps her time as a box office draw had passed and the novelty of her appeal was... Gone. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Groucho gives for not teaming again is that her, you know, her kind of moment is is past, and he didn't want to be associated with with somebody who, you know, is passing out of fashion. So yes, I think that is certainly um, a, a factor. Yeah, I do think this was, um, as I kind of suggested earlier in our podcast, this was the kind of idea that might have given Groucho a full-fledged solo screen stardom, which really eluded him, to find a, a good regular co-star for him, uh, preferably a woman. Um, you know, it, it this should have been the ticket. Maybe Carmen Miranda herself, much as I like her and promising as the combination seems, uh, you know, maybe he really needed somebody who, who could play... Uh, Margaret Dumont or Thelma Todd to him a little more. Um, there's also throughout this film there, it seems that writers are unsure about whether Carmen is supposed to be his straight woman or a kind of fellow comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does have jokes in the movie. Are they going to throw us out? Don't be silly. They wouldn't throw the best acting show business out of the hotel. I know, but what about us? You know, these kind of limp but recognizable joke lines. Um, and maybe uh, making a decision that she was going to be the straight woman in the act, um, maybe that would have helped. On the other hand, she's so flamboyant and she she herself is so um, f- funny, for lack of a better word. Not necessarily laugh out loud funny, but just distinctive and unusual. Um, that in a way, Groucho is the, the more conservative of the pair. Now imagine this film with Lucille Ball playing that part. <laughs> It's hard to you mean Groucho's part. <laughs> it's hard to imagine because the the part is so clearly written for Carmen Miranda. You know, she's even more or less playing herself in in her main role. Um, but mm-hmm. it's also a huge star vehicle. You're going to sing like five songs. You're going to play two mm-hmm. characters of two different nationalities. Um, you know, it's very. Uh, that reminds me of all the Danny Kaye movies of this period, which always. Um, contrived to have him play multiple roles because he was good at Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You know, it really gives her a pretty big assignment and um, it's possible that she um, wasn't up to it, but I don't think the writers were up to it either. You know, it's probably just as well because suppose this had been a hit, we might've gotten five more films like it and not gotten You Bet Your Life. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. Hmm? Martha Ray would have been quite good, I think. She could have and yet there is something, I don't know if it's just repeated mm. viewings, but to me, this film, um, despite its shortcomings, it's not quite as, um, it doesn't have quite the poverty-stricken, occasionally depressing quality of the next two, A Double Dynamite and A Girl in Every Port, which mm-hmm. they also have their pleasures, those two films. Um, but for me, they're somewhat less assured 
than this one. And it feels like um, Groucho, he doesn't, it doesn't feel like he's slumming it here the way it does even in some of the later Marx Brothers movies. It just feels mm-hmm. like the whole thing isn't quite adding up to as great a experience as it could. I like the way it gives him a, a big showcase. Uh, um, of the three, I do, I do prefer Double Dynamite, I think, by, by quite, a, quite a margin. But it, it's probably the one that, that gives him the most opportunities. Um, I, I guess Girl in Every Port is, is, is the one that where he is most central, the, the most, where, where he is the star. But uh, he's so tired and the material is so non-existent that it, it doesn't matter. So I, I think this is pro- probably his best opportunity. Um, but but all in all, I think I, I prefer Double Dynamite. I like seeing him in the very finale. Oh, he does get to dance with Kay a little bit in the in the yeah. musical finale for this film, um, and he also looks very natty in a tuxedo. Um, he spends most of mm. this film in a kind of bulky business suit, um, a three piece suit with a vest, um, and the jacket has these very big, big breast pockets on both sides. Um, yeah. he, he seems slightly it's almost like a zoot suit. Uh, yeah, it is. And it's a little, he seems slightly awkward in it. Um, not in the right way. Anyhow, there it was this film, uh, in the can and on screens, uh, at least created the idea that Groucho could uh, credibly appear on film without his brothers. And it did have a, a, a slight afterlife in that it was apparently uh, one of the most screened movies on television in the in the uh, in the 1950s, possibly due to uh, copyright loopholes or, or whatever. Although, although presumably not actually, because Coslow says in his book that that was when it went into profit. So presumably he was still uh, he did still own a piece of it at, at that point. But uh, when when the late shows you know started showing movies apparently this was one of the ones that was that came around most often so for for a lot of people presumably it was their first real taste or certainly mm-hmm. their most familiar taste of of groucho in a in his non you bet your life persona and it is um, probably my favorite groucho quote in relation to it is when he was asked in 1954 if he if he'd seen it on television and had a recent screening and he said yeah uh, i i got a lot of uh, i got a lot of mail about it all threatening <laughs> Well, this isn't a classic. It's hard to dislike it because there's nothing really bad about it. You know, it's pleasant enough. And there's a, for me, there's about five or six actually laugh out loud moments, but they're, they're moments. They're not scenes. Right. But even being the most generous, it's not better than any Marx Brothers film. Uh, yeah. I, I suppose guess. as a, as an example of Groucho at the movies, I find it less painful. Than watching uh, him in At the Circus and Go West. Yeah. I guess what I mean is that while it might be considered, and I'm doing air quotes here, a better film, it still didn't have the number of laughs that even the weakest Marx Brothers vehicle will give you. No, I, I suppose not, no. It's the closest he gets as a solo, isn't it, though, I think, to, to the atmosphere of a Marx Brothers film. Mm-hmm. It, it could almost be a late Marx plot, yeah. And although I think I would rather watch Copacabana than than at the circus or go west, um, this was a you know a, a new enough idea to cast Groucho in a uh, a less broad comic role without his brothers, um, and so the you know you're sort of hanging in to see if it works, um, and because we. Like with at the circus and go west, we we're comparing them to all those great earlier Marx Brothers movies, and so their failure is very vivid. Uh, this one is just kind of like it's a little hard to tell. Is it the whole idea that doesn't work, or is it the execution? 
Still, though, I wish one time Groucho had done a film that was conceived and tailored specifically for him. He never did. And, you know, it's a shame because even, even Harpo got one. But uh, this, like room service, is just a, a project that he got shoehorned into. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And in a way, it's surprising, isn't it? Uh, there's no question in my mind that, you know, he had it in him to carry a film as the comic star. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it never really happened. You do have to wonder if they might have made another film straight after Night in Casablanca if it wasn't for this one, though. So in that sense, it's uh, it's an unfortunately timed venture, given given how, how well received A Night in Casablanca was by, by the public. If he didn't have anything else to do straight afterwards, you wonder if they didn't say, hey, let's do another one of these. And that's that's a pity because they were they were on such such good form again in, in Casablanca. Uh, what do you make of the independent nature of this production? I mean, it, it's it's an independent film released through United Artists. Um, in that sense, it's similar to Night in Casablanca and Love Happy. Was the reliance on independent production here, did that have to do with not being able to get a studio contract? Um, I don't think so. I think it was just more more in the spirit of of wanting to be completely free from from interference mm-hmm. and not necessarily yes. being yeah. contractually bound to to uh, to a series of films. Um, I mean, they they all all those those three ventures all have so many people in common that it, it was obvious that it was a fairly small pool of i mean united artists obviously is the archetypal uh non-studio um venture you know so it's so it's mm-hmm. it's right that they were kind of at the heart of it but lester cowan and uh Coslo have have some dealings as well with each other um Coslo was going to do one touch of venus is that what it's called one touch of venus i always yeah. get the name wrong um with ava gardner is that what it's called one yeah, touch, one of, touch venus. of venus yeah. um and then he passed that on to to Cowan via Mary Pickford, who's who's common to to both uh, Love Happy and and uh, Copacabana in a in a in a back uh, you know back channel capacity. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think it was it was very much a kind of a, a bunch of people who were who were doing things their own way at that time that that Gummo was deliberately um, taking mm-hmm. them to. Yeah, you know, but one way or another, like room service before it, this was a real pivotal moment mm. in in his career, and it really affected a lot of things going forward. That if the film had been a success, would have gone totally differently. Yeah, and although this is uh, not exactly high praise, um, I do think it's just worth noting for any listeners who may not have seen the film or not have seen it recently. Um, you know, it is not bad, and the fact that it's not great um, doesn't stop it from being occasionally good mm. and rarely unpleasant. I mean, it's, it's, it's an enjoyable enough film. Um, and it gives you, you know, a good hour and a half of, uh, of Groucho Marx on screen being funny. It's worth another look if you haven't visited it in a while. Um, and particularly if you don't set your hopes too high. Um, it's, I, mm. I find it a very digestible, very watchable movie. Yeah. I had spent my whole life hearing negative things about it. And I was, I won't say surprised, but I had a good time. I enjoyed watching it. It wasn't yeah. a struggle, and I yeah. had, and I had a handful of big laughs, which I didn't expect. Not only is it is it not bad, it's also very very easy to to improve. You know, it's not like some of the later uh, Marx Brothers films where there's there's just great 
you know structural and 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 creative issues that you have with it i mean the the problems are, with it are quite straightforward it's too long there are too many songs there are too many subplots and uh you know anyone can can uh wire up one video recorder to another one and just snip them out and then you've got a, a probably a, a very nice indeed kind of one minute five what sorry one hour five minute <laughs> uh film <laughs> you were closer the first time yeah. <laughs> and, and did you like did you like my reference to video recorders there as well <laughs> how on the pulse am i wire up one video recorder to another i didn't even hear myself saying that but yeah i mean you've got you know a nice one hour movie there just take out some of those songs and thin out the uh the steve and whatever she's called stuff mm-hmm. uh, yeah Gra- Gracho is in in very good form i think well, all right, folks. Do you, anybody have any closing thoughts? Any any uh, last words on Copacabana before we wrap this up? I like Gloria Jean a lot. I just want to get that. I on do record. too. I I really do. And I'm I yeah. Been, she's sweet. She's sweet. She has a very appealing presence. She seems. I mean, she's obviously very young in this movie, but she also has a kind of. I don't know. I guess I guess it's convincing for a, a a young woman at the beginning of her adult life, but who does have this important job at this very hot, trendy New York night spot. She's comfortable at Toots Shores and um, at least imagining herself um, romantically involved with this, uh, you know, high rolling nightclub owner. Um, she's appealing. And uh, I also like, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the idea that Groucho was uh, protective of her and that although his screen persona always makes him the ultimate wolf, uh, in real life, he was yes. actually a, a defender of young female virtue. OK, my final question then is is from for, for both of you. What what is your your favorite moment in, in the film? I was watching it again today and one that I'd completely forgotten about or missed the first time, I think, would be would be my nomination, which is where. Um, various girls are giving their telephone numbers to to the the the, um, the auditioning the auditioner <laughs> guy, and he's copying them down into his little notebook. And then one of them says, uh, "My husband can take the call." He very crossly screws it up and throws it away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a nice moment. <laughs> I guess my favorite. I mean, it's easy to say the Go West number. I mean, that's the that's the great passage in this film but i think as an individual moment the the one we discussed earlier where groucho corrects his memory of what's been said to him by yeah. mr green in the mm-hmm. lobby that is a that works that's yeah. very sophisticated and unusual and and hilarious i, I somehow missed it in the yeah. past and this recent reviewing i i felt like i was noticing that for the first time somehow i'll go along with that same one well, I guess it's time to say things like the Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and co-hosted by Matthew Conium, Bob Gassell, and Noah Diamond, and edited by Bob Gassell. Hey, this was our 20th episode, boys. We've really uh, done a number of these at this point. And uh, in the months ahead, we will, uh, in specifically four, uh, we will have been doing this for two years. Um, and amazingly, it took us this long to get to Copacabana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but think of all the great masterpieces we have yet to discuss and stay with us and, and tune in every month uh, on that basis. If you're interested in discussing the Marx Brothers 24 hours a day, seven days a week with a lively and even star-studded cast of characters, you can do no better than to join the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group where this kind of thing flows thick and fast and endlessly. At our website, Marx Brothers Council Podcast. Dot com, 
you can get our entire archive of past episodes, as well as assorted other goodies. And uh, hey, we're getting near the holiday season. What better time to plug some books? Matthew is the author of The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, both not only enjoyable, but essential volumes for the Marx Brothers fan. Put them on your shelf, and if they're already there, put them on someone else's shelf this holiday season. And, and since I don't have a book to plug, I will plug, uh, there's a book called Anonymous that I think people should check out. <laughs> Who wrote it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I've heard good things, so look into that one. <laughs> and if you've already read Matthew's books and gifted them to everyone you care about, then you might work your way over to the D's for Gimme a Thrill, My History of I'll Say She Is, the Lost Marx Brothers musical. I've also just published a new second edition of my book, 400 Years in Manhattan, a lavishly mm. illustrated uh, history of New York City and of my erstwhile career as a New York City tour guide. Well, I know that uh, an episode like this can only end one way. It's not going to be with Barry Manilow, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) It's not going to be with Barry Manilow. So here's everyone's favorite, Morrissey. Lola, she was a showgirl. With yellow feathers in her hair and a dress cut down to there, she put me wrinkled into the shasha. And while she tried to be stuck, only always standing back across the crowded floor. She worked from eight to four. They were young and they each other who passed for more. It's a copa, copa cabana, the holy spot north of Havana. It's a copa, copa cabana. Music and fishing were always sufficient. It's a copa, sefila. His name was Rico. He wore a diamond. He was escorted to his chair. He saw Lola dancing there, and when she finished, he called her over. But Rico went a bit too far Tony said it was a bar And then the punches blew And shells were smashed in two There was blood in a single gunshot But just two, two, two It's a copa Copa cabana You know this for not a cabana It's a copa Copa cabana Music and fishing Well, always a fishing It's a copa She lost her mind. It's 
Shukumata. Shukumata.